I don't know if you'd say like the brainchild of, but the, uh, no, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not going to say brainchild. That's what I don't know what a brainchild is. Welcome to the Ask Anything Podcast, because some things are better said than read. My name is Peter LaRuffa, and as you're probably aware, Ask Anything, as I explained in the introduction video, uh, Ask Anything started out as something that I did on Instagram stories during COVID, and I still do it once a week, usually on a Monday or Tuesday. I'll just post something on my Instagram story saying Ask Anything, and that's usually the greatest source that I have for receiving questions from you guys, in addition to the link that's in my Instagram profile, so you can submit questions anytime you want. And so last week, it was uh, the week following baptism at Grace Fellowship Church, and there were lots of different questions about baptism. And so here's how it kind of went. Somebody wanted to know about paedo-baptism, and so I explained that. And then somebody wanted to know if baptism should be a requirement for church membership. I don't think it should be. I explained that. Uh, Let's see what else. Then we got into... Oh, then it was, why is the cutoff for baptism class at GFC 12 years old? And I explained that uh, and got into the importance of making a credible profession of faith. And so uh, to, to really bottom line, the answer to that question is it's not because we don't think people prior to the age of 12 can be saved or anything like that. We've just had experiences before, whereas that person is making a public profession of faith, the public profession of faith was more kind of faith in what their parents believe or just saying some things that were kind of more cute than really evidencing genuine saving faith. I'm not saying those people weren't saved. I'm just saying it didn't really accurately reflect the gospel, which we thought that the ordinance of baptism is supposed to do. So we've, uh, for many years now, have said that 12 years old was going to be the minimum age for our baptism class, and that's what we do. But then somebody asked this question, which I'm going to answer today. If a clear profession of faith is so important for baptism— what about nonverbal people or those with special needs? What a great question. I mean, in our Bibles, we have verses like this in Romans chapter 10, beginning in verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And verse 9 says this, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so it's like, wow, seems to be laid out pretty clear there from the Apostle Paul that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, therefore a verbal profession of faith must be pretty important. And so it begs this question that I'd like to answer today. What about those who can't profess faith? Will God save people who cannot make a verbal profession of faith? Many people will go to 2 Samuel 12. And so uh, in 2 Samuel 12, we read about uh, David's sin with Uh, Bathsheba, and uh, he calls Bathsheba to his house, and he uh, has sex with her. I I think he rapes her. We can get into that in another podcast episode. She becomes pregnant, and uh, Uriah the Hittite is her husband, and uh, he comes back from battle, and David uh, tries to set it up in such a way that Uriah would have sex with his wife Bathsheba so that he would think that that's his child, but that doesn't work. And eventually what David does is have Uriah killed. And Nathan then comes and rebukes David for what he has done. And one of the penalties for what David has done is that the sword would never leave his home. And the child that uh, Bathsheba was pregnant with would in fact die and does in fact die. And so in 2 Samuel 12, uh, we read this. And so let's pick it up in verse uh, 21. Then his servant said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? 
but now he is dead. Why should I fast? This is verse 23. Can I bring him back again? And then David says this, I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. And so historically, people have looked at this as kind of proof positive where David is confident that his child, his baby child who has died, uh, he was confident, David was confident that he himself was going to go to heaven. If he says, I shall go to him, then he was confident that he was going to see uh, his son in heaven. And therefore, there's an example uh, of where uh, we have confidence that God saves people who have not made a profession of faith, uh, have not stated their belief system at all because they died either while in utero or died very young. And so the question that's being asked is important because think of how many people can't give a profession of faith or a, a verbal or credible profession of faith. There are people who are nonverbal. They do not speak. Uh, what about people who die, babies who die very young? What about the literally millions of babies who have been murdered through the atrocity of abortion, uh, particularly in our country and all around the world? What are we to think of people who never could give a profession of faith? And so Second Samuel 12 is kind of the uh, classic uh, argument for and an example of here is David saying that he is confident that he's going to see his child uh, after he dies and goes to heaven. I get it. I think there's a stronger argument that can be made. I don't think Second Samuel 12 is really great, and I know I'm disagreeing with like a lot of people, but I think it's an isolated incident. I don't think it gives us a ton of a ton of hope, um, and I wish I could hear. Not David talk, who's obviously in a state of emotional disarray, and I mean, he's not really at the high point of his life when he's saying what he's saying. I actually think the best place to look and where I want to take you to is the book of Deuteronomy chapter 1. And so Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible, the fifth book of the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, all written by Moses. Deuteronomy is a collection basically of sermons or speeches that Moses is giving towards the end of his life. And the first speech that he gives spans uh, just about the whole of four chapters in the beginning of Deuteronomy. And so in Deuteronomy, uh, in verse 8, um, we have... Uh, Moses saying this, See, I have set the land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give to them and to their offspring after them. And so uh, you may recall, if you're familiar with the Abrahamic covenant, which is given in Genesis chapter 15, uh, God promises to give Abraham and the children of Abraham this land, the land of Canaan. He promises it to Abraham. He repeats it later on in Genesis to Isaac and to Jacob. In fact, these three patriarchs are mentioned, I think, about seven times maybe throughout the book of Deuteronomy. And so he promised them to do this, and he is making good on his promise. And so here they are. Uh, skip down to verse 22 in Deuteronomy chapter 1, and they get to the land. And verse 22 says this, Then all of you came near me and said, Let us send men before us that they may explore the land for us and bring us word again of the way by which we must go up and the cities to which we shall come. And so it seems like the people are saying, you know, let's send some spies in there to spy out the land, a little recon action, find out what we have going ahead of us. And it uh, looks like Moses took that request to the Lord. Mo the Lord approved it. And so they sent in spies, 12 spies, one from each tribe, to spy out the land. And they come back with actually a good report of the land. Uh, it says it's good land that the Lord our God is giving us, verse 25. Verse 26 is this, this is what Moses is saying, Yet you would not go up, but rebelled against 
the command of the Lord your God. And you murmured in your tents and said, because the Lord hated us, he has brought us out of the land of Egypt to give us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us. And so this is something that actually all of us can relate to, where there's sometimes where we'll forget God really is for us. But we'll look around at our circumstances, and if we're not walking closely with the Lord, we'll say, maybe God's not for us. Maybe these circumstances are not for me. And of course, that's not true. It's just our own finite, fickle minds making that up. But that's what they're doing right there. And they're saying, maybe God isn't for us. Maybe he brought us here. They're actually being suspicious of God. High treason. High treason to say, wow, maybe God is actually doing something evil. Maybe he's not doing something good. This is a huge, huge uh, sin. And so in verse 34, there's a penalty uh, for the rebellion of the people of God, the rebellion of Israel. And the Lord says this in verse 34, uh, and the Lord heard your words and he was angered and he swore, not one of these men of this evil generation shall see the good land that I swore to give to your fathers, except Caleb, he shall see it, and to him and to his children I will give the land on which he has trodden, because he has wholly followed the Lord. Uh, He also then goes on to say that Joshua would see it. And then in verse 39, this is the verse that I think comes to answer our question here. And as for your little ones, who you said would become a prey, meaning you said would become victims of the Amorites, and your children, listen to this, who today have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. And to them I will give it, and they shall possess it. But as for you, turn and journey into the wilderness in the direction of the Red Sea. And so do you see what the Lord did there? He promised to give this land to the people of Israel. The people of Israel rebelled, and therefore the people of Israel were not going to see the land. And that was the penalty for their rebellion. But do you see that he excused and pardoned and showed mercy to an entire group of people, their children, who have no knowledge of good or evil, they shall go in there. Now, you might say, that has nothing to do with salvation, that has nothing to do with baptism, has nothing to do with anything we're talking about. But I think it does. I think it shows that there's a precedent set where God shows mercy to those who did not know good or evil, specifically children. And so we're not talking about adults who can make decisions for or against the Lord. We're not talking about people who have the cognitive ability to choose to believe in God or to rebel against God. These are children who, in the own, in, in the words of the Lord, have no knowledge of good or evil. They shall go in there. And so for me, that's kind of my go-to. I go to Deuteronomy chapter 1 because I think there's an example where God's not just Uh, allowing one child or an isolated incident, he says, your children, the children of the people of Israel at that point of time, who did not know good or evil, they were allowed to possess the land. And so that shows that it's not unprecedented for God to allow people to benefit from his grace, his mercy, his promises, even though they did not know good or evil. And so for me, That's the precedent that I see in Scripture to say it would not be unprecedented for the Lord to say, yes, every baby who dies in utero is with me. Yes, every person who dies who cannot communicate, uh, that person is with me. Every person who uh, has a tragic end of life before uh, they were able to know good or evil, usually very young children, they are with me. I take them in. I show them my mercy. And so scriptural precedent is important. And that shows that it's not outside the character of God to save people who had no knowledge of good or evil, specifically children. And so these are hard topics to deal with. 
These are hard, hard questions to answer because usually it's been my experience when people ask these questions, they're asking this question with a specific person in mind. Perhaps it's a, a relative of theirs. Perhaps it's a child that they've had to tragically go through losing and, and burying. One of the most hardest things for people to do is for a parent to bury a child. And this gives us hope. This is uh, this strengthens and undergirds our faith. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. So this for us, for a people of faith, this bridges that gap between what we know, what we can prove, and then what we can't prove, but we just know by faith because we believe that that's consistent with God's character and what we see in the scriptures. And so I hope that's helpful to you. I hope specifically if this question is hard for you to listen to because you are somebody who has suffered the loss of a young one, a young loved one, I hope that this would encourage you, that you would take heart in the goodness of God, knowing that that person is in the arms of his or her Savior now and forever. And if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, if you love him, you will be reunited with your Savior and your loved one someday. <laughs>